We are so glad that you are here. Um, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here. If I've never met you, I'd love to meet you afterwards. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 118, so it should be on your sheet there in front of you. Uh, every verse right there for you. You're welcome as well to use a Bible or uh, use a Bible app on your phone or something like that. But we will be in Psalm 118 this morning. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Father, we, um, we're grateful that you've given us life and breath and that you've given us your son, Jesus. We pray this morning that as we bring all of our thoughts and um, anxieties and fears and agendas and um, distractions and everything that we have going on after this, we pray that for the next hour you would quiet us, that you would slow us, that you would help us as men to allow your word to penetrate our hearts deeply. And this morning in particular, we pray that you Holy Spirit would cultivate in us an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the things that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, um, G.K. Chesterton, if you're familiar with his work, he was an author around uh, C.S. Lewis's time. He wrote this about gratitude. He said, I would maintain that thanks, giving thanks, is the highest form of thought. Okay, so giving thanks is the highest form of thought, Chesterton said. He said, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. I love that definition. The idea of giving thanks, being thankful, being grateful, is the idea of being exceedingly happy. But not just happy, but that your happiness is doubled by wonder, by awe. Right? That there's almost a, a worshipful attitude to the idea of being grateful. That to be grateful is to recognize that there is someone out there who's bigger than you, who is providing, who is helping, who is loving, who is rescuing. To be grateful is to recognize that you've been given something. And so for Chesterton, he's saying, look, being grateful, being thankful is the highest form of thought. Right? It's the most noble, most difficult to come by. So if that's true, if it's true that giving thanks, being grateful is the highest form of thought, then what do you think the lowest form of thought is? I would argue in our day today, the lowest form of thought is cynicism. It's cynicism. Being cynical. I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. The idea of being cynical is the idea of being consistently let down, but so so much so that you feel like the the way to go now is not to get your hopes up so that you'll just be let down again, but that cynicism is, is this lie that says, well, actually the higher path, the wise path is just to assume, look, it's all broken. We're never going to get what we really want. And so why even ask for anything at all? Why even expect joy? Why even expect goodness? So uh, another great author, perhaps we call him a philosopher of our day, wrote this about cynicism. He said, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world, Because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. You hear what he said? 
Cynicism is a rejection of the world. Why? Well, because we're afraid. We're afraid that all that the world's going to offer us is just disappointment. Because of its brokenness, because life is hard, then isn't the wise thing, cynicism says, just to accept it and move on. Who is that great author, that great philosopher of our day? Well, his name is Stephen Colbert. Maybe you know his work. Amazing the kind of clarity, though, that he sees. And so I wonder, as you come in this morning, a Bible study like this each and every week, how would you characterize yourself on the spectrum? Do you see yourself really as a grateful man? A man who is marked by an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the blessings of this life? Or are you cynical? Have you kind of just resolved, look, life is hard. We don't always get what we want. And so why even bother at all? Isn't it just better to be cynical, to just assume that this broken world has nothing to offer? You see, if you're not a believer, you might argue that cynicism is the easy way, right? It's the low shelf, according to Chesterton. His logic, right, is the lowest form of thought. But what I want you to see as Christians, that cynicism is especially difficult for us. And the reason is this. We don't fear the world, that the world will disappoint us. You see, if you believe in God, the temptation is that, well, he's the one who's going to disappoint us. You see, everything that we long for, everything that we ask for, is not just out there in the universe, but it's directed at a person. It's directed at God himself. And so this morning, if you found yourself, your prayers, you feel like haven't been answered, or you feel like you've been disappointed in your relationship with God, perhaps this morning as a Christian, you find yourself cynical. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, I'd argue, you know, we think about the spiritual disciplines. You think, okay, what are those? And you might quickly turn to what we talked about last week, right? Meditating on the Word or prayer or worship. I would argue that gratitude, giving thanks, is a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline that we don't come by very easily. That is, we have to work at it. Or perhaps a better way to say it is we have to allow the Lord to work in us, to cultivate a deep sense of thankfulness and gratitude. Because it's easy for us to count all the things we don't have or count all of our disappointments. It's much harder to prayerfully count all the things God has done for us. And this has been true for God's people for thousands of years. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, right? They were beaten. They were told to do things against their will. They had no rights and no freedom. And so God sent Moses to deliver them miraculously from their slavery. And not 45 days after their freedom, they found themselves in the middle of the desert and they were hungry. And this is what they said. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So 45 days after being freed from slavery, what are they doing? They're complaining. They're hungry, and they're saying, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt 
Because though we were enslaved and had no rights, at least we had food. So it is with us, right? It is so easy for us to lose sight of all that God has done, even in our not-so-distant past. When we look at all around us and the circumstances of life, and we think, gosh, where, where are you, God? And what are you doing? And so it shouldn't surprise us that one of the themes that you see throughout the Psalms, and in fact, I would say throughout the Old Testament, maybe all of Scripture, is the idea of giving thanks. And this is true for Psalm 118. That's our psalm this morning. Psalm 118 begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And if you turn over on the back of your sheet, you'll notice verse 29 ends the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It's a poem that begins and ends the same way. It's a poem about gratitude. Psalm 118 is the last of the Psalms, the Egyptian Psalms, called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. They were the Psalms of praise that centered around the Passover. There were Psalms that went back and remembered and recalled the way God had delivered his people out of Egypt, had rescued them from slavery. And they sung these psalms every single Passover meal as a means of remembering, remembering what God has done. So we have good reason to believe that actually Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, they're celebrating Passover, they sang this very psalm. So how do we do this? How do we cultivate gratitude in a cynical world? When life can be disappointing, when we can find ourselves just like the people of Israel, forgetting what God has done, forgetting how he has delivered us and grumbling and complaining, how do we become suddenly thankful as God's men? I think the clue for us is right in the middle of the psalm. It's on the front page. Verse 17. And this is what we're going to center on this morning. How do you cultivate the discipline of gratitude? The psalmist writes, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. A couple years ago, I mentioned this in a sermon. I think it bears repeating. Webster defines ingratitude as the kind of forgetfulness for a kindness received. That's how Webster defines it. And gratitude is forgetfulness for kindness received. Well, if that's true, then this morning what I want us to consider is that gratitude is remembering. Or to use the word of the psalmist, gratitude begins with recounting. Recounting the deeds of the Lord. To go back and to remember all that he has done for us. To not forget that time and time again, God has delivered us as his people. And so we should be filled, even in the midst of disappointment, with gratitude. But he is trustworthy and he is good and he will continue to deliver us until he comes again. So we're going to look at this in three ways, three big categories, and we'll send you to your tables. How do we recount the deeds of God? Well, we cultivate the discipline of gratitude first by recounting God's love. Okay, recounting God's love, we'll see this in Psalm 118. Second, that we are called to recount God's help. And third, 
that we are called to recount God's salvation. So in Psalm 118, in these three ways, we'll see this is how we cultivate a discipline of gratitude. So first, recounting God's love. As I mentioned, uh, Psalm 118 begins and ends with the same verse, really the same phrase, the same sentence. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord is a theme throughout the Old Testament. The steadfast love there, those two words really come from one Hebrew word, the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. It's a very, very important word. In many ways, we could say this word is not translatable. And so, um, depending on your Bible that you've brought with you, some of you might have ESV or NIV or NAS or NRSV or everything in between, you might actually, in every single translation, have a different word for hesed. Because we're not sure exactly how to really capture the fullness of the meaning. The idea is um, loyalty, faithfulness, um, never-ending, never-stopping, steadfast is what the ESV uses. Right? The kind of love that never gives up, that never leaves us, never forsakes us, that is faithful even when we are faithless, that is unconditional, that is loyal. And this morning, I'm going to use the word covenantal. It's God's covenant love for us. That God loves us, not because of who we are, but because that's who He is. Not because we are particularly lovely, but because He is love. It's His covenant love for you and for me. And so that really bookends what this psalm is about. That thankfulness, deep down, comes with this understanding that you are loved steadfastly, faithfully, by the God of the universe. Now the challenge for us as men this morning is our, um, our sense of masculinity sometimes gets in the way of experiencing God's love. We call it masculinity. I would call it pride. That really to experience the love of God in its fullness requires some humility. It requires some humility on our parts to really expose ourselves, to be vulnerable, to experience that God loves us but also thinks it requires us to understand what a covenant is in the first place. Because the reality is, is we don't love God the way that he loves us. We don't love each other, our wives, our children, the way that we love he loves us. We want to, we desire to, but the reality is we don't. We don't. His covenant love is spelled out for us in the book of Exodus. I'll read this. It's Exodus 34. This is his covenant name, how he describes himself. The Lord, it says, passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or for us this morning, abounding in covenant love and faithfulness. It's who he is. He is abounding in love for his people. That means he's abounding in love for you. For you. Well, how do we love? We don't love covenantally. We love contractually. You know what I mean by that? I'm sure a lot of you guys this morning will probably, as you go to work, are going to deal with some contracts. We love contractually. In other words, we love in order to make a deal. I'll love you if you'll love me. But if you don't love me the way I want to be loved, I'm sorry, deal's off. I'm not going to love you. We treat each other that way. 
we have made vows to our wives that says we're going to love unconditionally. But the reality is when push comes to shove on any given day, we can fall into the trap, right, of eye for an eye saying, well, you didn't love me the way I want to be loved today. And so I'm going to respond in this way. And so it is with God, too. But at any given moment, if we don't feel particularly loved by him, right, we feel like, well, he doesn't love us. And so how, how could we respond at all? And what we fail to realize is God doesn't love us contractually. <laughs> and even though we might fail to love others or fail to love him, he loves us anyways. Because he loves us with a never-ending, loyal, faithful covenant of love. Uh, David Brooks um, Op-ed writer, I'm sure you're familiar with his writing in the New York Times. He was writing on a book by a theologian named Marsha Polly. And she wrote a book called Commonwealth and Covenant. And this is his observations of what it means to love covenantally in our world. He says, when we go out and make a deal, we make a contract. When we are situated within something, it's because we have made a covenant. A contract protects interests. But a covenant protects relationships. A covenant exists between people who understand that they are a part of one another. It involves a vow to serve the relationship that is sealed by love. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people. It's amazing in the New York Times. This idea is when we have a covenant relationship, everything is protected. Everything about that relationship. And though we might fail to uphold our end of the bargain, God does not fail us. And so what we must see this morning, brothers, is that God loves you despite our failure to love him. What does it mean to be loved by like that? Do you experience that? Have you seen the marks of God's love in your life? Gracious, never-ending, never-stopping love. And this love is exhaustive. We see this in verses 2, verse 3, and verse 4 of Psalm 118. If you're uh, familiar with the way we worship at PCPC, if you worship with us, you know that we typically uh, begin with a call to worship. And that call to worship is a call and response. So the pastor will read a verse and the congregation will respond. You think, you know, where does that come from? That must come from the Reformation period. No. It's actually much, much older than that. It goes all the way back to the Psalms themselves. And we see that actually here, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. They're called antiphons, a call and response. The idea is, let the, we see this verse 2, Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the, those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. With each verse... We see it expanded, right? The house of Israel, right? The house of Aaron. Who's Aaron? The house of Aaron. Well, those are the priests, right? Those who fear the Lord. So it's almost like saying, okay, you over here. Do you love the Lord? Let the steadfast love. Okay, you over here. You over here. The point is, all of us have experienced the love of God because he has poured his love out for all people. And so let all of us respond with hearts of gratitude, with thanksgiving, because the God of the universe has loved you, even though we have failed to love him. So beginning to cultivate the discipline of gratitude is to recount his love, to remind yourself of his love. 
not just conceptually, not just kind of out there theologically, but specifically. How has he loved you? Where have you seen his love for you? In your past? Maybe even just this week? That's where it begins. God is a God of love, covenantal love, a love that is unfailing, that is loyal, and that is faithful, even though we fail to love him. Second, we're called to recount God's help. Look with me at verse 5. The psalmist writes, Out of my distress I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me, and he set me free. I think one of the hardest things about having gratitude is this right here, that um, being grateful is having a humility to be thankful for what God has given us, even if it's not what we want. Even if it's not what we want. You see, like the people of Israel, it's easy for us to grumble, to look at what we don't have, or to say, look, I've been praying and praying and pleading with you and you have not answered me. We fail to recognize, well, perhaps he has. It's just not what you want. So what do we do with that? Right? Gratitude forces us to slam up against our desires and where they kind of hit a wall with the will of God. And so verse 5, we see this. It says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. Do you feel distressed? And if you don't feel distressed today, have you ever felt distress? <laughs> we all have. And it's in those moments that we, I mean, almost all people, and even this morning, if you don't know God, I would challenge you. If you're not a Christian, that it's in those moments when you feel most at the end of yourself that even the most staunch atheist will pray. I don't know what they're praying to, but they're recognizing, I have nowhere else to turn, and so I just need help. I just need help. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's asking for help, and he's saying, look, the Lord answered me, and he set me free. It's the same kind of word we saw last week when it comes to the Holy Scriptures, the idea of freedom being put out into a large place. Now, sometimes that freedom in God is not what we want, but it's the best thing for us. We see this when we are afraid. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right, there's nothing for me to fear because if God is on my side and he is greater than any man that I could possibly face, then what is there to fear? We see this when we are, um, when we are finding ourselves uh, hated by others. The Lord is on my side, verse 7, as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And we see that the Lord is our refuge, verse 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And so the question for us this morning is when you find yourself at the, at the end of your rope, when you find yourself down and out, if you're distressed, right, if you feel hated, who do you go for for help? Where do you go for help? Or perhaps the better question is do you ask for help at all? Because the problem for us as men is not just do we even go to the Lord for help. Do we even ask for help? Do we want help? Do we find ourselves doing it our, ourselves, wanting to make it happen on our own? When I read verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Do you know who I think of? I don't think of another man. I think of myself. Right? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in myself. And myself, because that's my propensity, right? That's, that's my tendency. I trust in myself. I don't trust in the Lord. 
I don't trust in the Lord. I trust in myself to get it done. Why? Because I have an agenda. And if I give it up to him, then though he might answer my prayer, it might be not the way that I want him to answer it. That's the honest truth. So asking for help means that we must humble ourselves to say that we can't do it, that we don't have the ability, but it also requires something else. It requires trust. That ultimately when we ask God for help, that we would trust that he will answer us, that he will hear our prayers, and that he will work in power, and that he will give us what we need. Right? The thing that will meet us at our deepest need. This is why Psalm 118 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. So as we think about the Reformation and think about what Luther did, not just in nailing 95 theses to the door, but after that, all that he was up against, right? The weight of the Catholic Church against him. And in those days, not just the Catholic Church, but the government of his country itself against him. All of this against him you can see why Psalm 118 became a refuge for him. This is what he said. He said, this is my psalm. Psalm 118. This is my psalm. It's my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which nor emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. So think about what he was up against, constantly feeling the weight and the pressure, feeling like he was the only one, that he was surrounded by people who hated him, under distress, coming to Psalm 118 and remembering, the Lord is my help. He has been my help. He has always been my help. And though I don't see his help right now, I know he will deliver me. Brothers, that's the message. That's the message to recount the way that he has helped us, to remember, to write down, literally, all the ways that you can see God's help in your life. Because though you might not be able to see it now, to look back and remember he has helped you, gives us every faith and confidence that he will help us again. So lastly, ultimately, what does this help look like? Ultimately, gratitude comes from being overwhelmed as we recount his salvation. To the God of the universe who loved you covenantally, who has helped you in every situation, sent his son Jesus Christ to die and to rise again for you. So we see this beginning, verse 14, look at your sheet. Verse 14 The psalmist writes, The Lord is my strength and my psalm. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This is an echo of Exodus, the song of Moses, immediately sung as the people cross the Red Sea. You see the quotes there on your page taken directly from Exodus 15, verse 6. Even the beginning, the Lord is my strength and my song, Exodus 15, verse 2. The point is this. This is it's about the Passover. It's about being delivered from slavery. This was them looking back as God's people on their salvation. To remember that, look, God saved us from slavery, from Egypt. He can and He is saving us now. 
And so every Passover, the people of Israel, they would sing this psalm. So what does that have to do with us now 2,000 years later as Christians? How are we to think about the Passover? How are we to think about the people of Israel being delivered from slavery out of Egypt? Well, all of this is pointing to an even greater deliverance, an even greater rescue from, not slavery from Egypt, but slavery from sin. That's where we're going to end this morning. We see this in verses 19 through 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness, the psalmist says, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and become my salvation. How? Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How has the Lord become our salvation? The psalmist tells us in verse 22. Right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ in the Gospels says that He is the cornerstone. He is the stone that the builders rejected. Who are they? Well, they were the people of Israel who shouted condemnation on him, crucify him. And because he was rejected for us, we now are not rejected by God, but he died in our place and he rose again that we might have life and victory. We see this victory, verse nine, uh, verses 25, 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This, the Lord our God, he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up the horns to the altar. The gospel of John. Jesus came into Jerusalem before he would be crucified. And as he entered into the city, the people gathered and they began to wave palm branches they were recognizing that the victory of the King, Jesus Christ, has come to us. And this is what they said. Look at verses 25 and 26 as I read this. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, the people were gathered around quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he. Hosanna. Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It means save us. Save us. The people that day expected Jesus to save them from oppression, physically, politically. They thought that he would be someone who would come and restore the nation and kingdom of Israel as a political state. But Jesus came for so much more. He came to rescue them from sin from death. And through his death and resurrection, we now have victory through him. So this morning I ask you, do you believe that? Have you trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation? Because if God has opened your eyes to see that, then we can see why fundamentally the Christian life is centered on gratitude. Gratitude. Because how else could we not be thankful 
to recognize that God died for you. God died for me. And though we might face all kinds of storms in this life, He has rescued us, and one day He will come again. And so be thankful. Be grateful in all circumstances. And though it's hard, and though we might be prone to cynicism, pray that God will begin to cultivate in you a heart of gratitude and recount the deeds of the Lord. He died for you. He rose again for you. He has helped you time and time again. And He loves you with a covenantal, unfailing, never giving up kind of love. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables as we think about gratitude this morning. Father, admittedly, even as I teach this, I'm preaching to myself that I am prone uh, to cynicism. For me, I admit that the way that my cynicism comes out is I just don't always pray. I don't always ask for things and fear of what the answer might be. So, Father, for myself, I pray that you would cultivate a heart of gratitude, that in thanksgiving I would come to you as I recount all the things you've done for me, and I would long and rely on your help again, that I recognize that you have sent your son Jesus to die and to rise again for me. So I pray that you would deliver me once more. Pray that it was well for my brothers this morning as we talk about these things at our tables. Help us to be honest with each other and with you. And we pray as we leave this place that you would cultivate in us the discipline of gratitude, that you would fill our hearts with thanksgiving, that you would overwhelm us with your covenant of love so we could respond with thanks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.